Good morning. Good morning. This morning we continue our study that we have started some weeks ago from Jesus' parable of the sower or the soils. In our first message, we considered the setting that is a farmer seeding a field with a view to a harvest. We considered the sower, the Lord Jesus Christ, and as he represents all others who would sow the seed. And we considered the seed, which is the good word of God. And last week we came to consider the first of the soils that Jesus presents in his parable of the four soils. And we looked at the calloused heart of the hard ground hearer. And we saw that his heart is unprepared to receive the word. It's unresponsive to the preaching of the word. And we looked at the influences that hardened the calloused heart of the hard ground hearer. And then we looked at the tragic doom of the hard ground hearer and then considered some final application. Well, believe it or not, even after this last week, the calendar tells us, if maybe the weather doesn't, that spring is just around the corner. And in a few weeks, you that have gardens will begin to prepare your soil. You'll remove everything that would hamper the germination of the seed because you want the seeds that you plant to have the most favorable growing conditions. And in Jesus' parable of the soils, we saw that his foundational principle is this. It bears for farmers, it bears for those that would hear the word of God to be true. The growth of the seed always depends upon the quality of the soil. And this truth applies spiritually speaking to each and every person that's in this room. Each one of us comes to gospel preaching with a certain heart disposition toward the Word of God. Your, your heart soil, if I may put it that way, determines how you will hear and respond to the sowing of God's good Word. Each one of us is represented by one of the four soil types in our Lord's parable of the sower. And we have to ask ourselves honestly before God, which soil best represents me? So I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 13. We're not here to examine the soil of others, we're here to examine the soil of our own hearts. Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 and then 18 through 23. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And great multitudes gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. 
But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some 30. Well, may God add his own blessing to the preaching of the word. Let's once more ask God's help. Our Father, we would receive no benefit this morning from the preaching and hearing of the word if you do not come down and open ears and soften hearts Enable us to hear and to believe and to behave ourselves according to the word of God. Help me as preacher, help all of us as hearers this morning, that in the end that we will prove ourselves to be good soil hearers of the word of God. Not hard ground hearers, not rocky soil hearers, not thorn encumbered hearers, but that we would bear fruit 30, 60 and a hundredfold. And to that end, our Father, if there be any here that are not good ground hearers, we pray that by the power of your grace, you would till up the soil of their hearts. You would plant that seed. You would fertilize it with your grace. You would cause it to put down deep roots and bear up fruit unto eternal life. Lord, you're the heavenly husbandman, and we pray that you would go about sowing this day, and that you would fertilize, and that you would bring the increase. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we have two headings in our study. We're going to consider an explanation of the imagery of the stony ground hearer, or the temporary professing Christian. And then we're going to look at an application of the lessons that are taught by the stony ground hearer. Each one of these four soil types responds differently to the sowing of the seed of God's good word. You see, what you bring to the word, the condition of your heart, and how you hear determines what you will take from the word. That is, whether or not the word will be productive in your life. 
Your heart condition determines how receptive you are to the word. It will determine whether you will hear and bear fruit or whether you will at the last prove to be barren. Consider Jesus' descriptive portrait of the stony ground hearer. He illustrates it this way, that the seed of the good word of God is sown in rocky places. He's not talking about a place that has stones scattered around the field. He's talking about a kind of a field where there's a, a hard rock shelf just under a few inches of soil. The soil looks good, but underneath it is a hard rock base. And so the seed is planted not in deep soil, but in shallow soil. And we see that the shoot being planted in this shallow soil immediately springs up. And then Jesus says the rising sun scorches the seed. That the seed has opposition above the ground. And Luke tells us that the seed lacks that the seed lacks moisture in the soil. And so the seed has no nutrients below in the, the ground. And then the shoot from the seed withers away, proves to be fruitless, and finally dies. The Lord Jesus Christ can look out at his hearers, and he can see various soil types represented in those that were standing and listening to him preach. And such is the case everywhere that the word is preached. All four of these soil types are represented in any congregation of any size of those who come to hear the Word of God. Now what we're going to do this morning is we consider an explanation of the imagery of the stony ground here, this temporary professing Christian. We're going to look first of all at his early encouragements, secondly his fatal deficiencies, and thirdly his eventual apostasy. So let us jump right in as we consider the explanation of the imagery here. First of all, let us look at this stony ground hearer's early encouragements. Things look good right away. Notice, first of all, he hears the good word. Matthew 13 and verse 20. The one in whom the seed was sown on the rocky places is the man who hears the word. Like the heart of the hard ground here we considered last time, the heart of the, of the stony ground here also hears the word. He owns it to be the good word of God. And like the calloused here, the temporary professing Christian, sits for a time at least under sound biblical preaching. But as we're going to see sadly, like the hard ground here, the stony ground here fails to produce the fruit that would indicate that he has really become a genuine Christian. And yet there's a difference between these two soils. Whereas the hard ground hearer only hears, but does not profit from the word of God, the stony ground here, on the other hand, both hears and receives the seed of the word. He seems for a time to be a genuine convert to Jesus Christ. His seed, as it were, it germinates. The Bible teaches that faith comes by hearing the word of God. But yet not all hearing of the word of God produces saving faith. Some who hear the word profess a faith that fails to bear the fruit of true conversion. That's what Jesus is teaching here. So as we consider the stony ground here's early encouragements, first of all, he hears the good word. 
He's in a place where the good word is preached, and he hears it. Secondly, he immediately receives the word into his heart. Verse 20, And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky place is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it. A good sign. He comes under the preaching of the word. He embraces it right away. He doesn't hold the preached word at arm's length. He welcomes the ministry of the word. He embraces its doctrine. He is like the Berean hearers that Luke speaks of, who receive the word with great eagerness. He's excited about the preaching of the word. You see, the stony ground here, he doesn't pick and choose what he will accept and what he will not accept. He eagerly accepts the word, the whole word, and nothing but the word. He does so immediately without hesitation, without reservation, without argument. He appears to all to be a teachable soul. And even more than that, he may be one who is so hungry for the word that you find him at the, all the services of the church, especially when the word of God is preached. He may even download and listen to sermons and read solid Christian literature. He's, he's a marvel to many people. That's an encouragement. He immediately receives the word into his heart. Notice, thirdly, he joyfully receives the word into his heart. He hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He's exuberant. He may even be ecstatic. He hears the preaching of the word and he listens with rapt attention. He doesn't ridicule the preacher. He doesn't try to pick apart his sermons. He respects the preacher. He reverences the word that he preaches. He receives him like Herod did at time John the Baptist, wanting to hear the word from his lips. He's not like Ahab who hated Micaiah and couldn't bear to hear his message. He always says bad things about me. I don't want to listen to him. No, he's not like that. The stony ground here gladly gives his ear to the preaching. In fact, he might even invite others to hear the word of God. He seems to receive the word of God with a good heart. The signs, all the vital signs, as so that we could read them early on, they're good. So he hears the good word, he immediately receives it, he joyfully receives it. And notice fourthly, he believes what he hears. Luke gives us these words, and those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear the word, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while. They give every indication that they've embraced the word of God. You see, stony ground hearers are a sort of believer, and they are a sort of believer for a time. They may be convinced of the doctrines of Scripture and even express an earnest commitment to the biblical doctrine of salvation. They may delight in the hope of heaven and tremble at the prospect of hell for unbelievers. They believe that the Bible and the Bible alone is the sure guide and the right way to heaven. Ask them, they'll tell you. But of course... Early on, so did Simon Magus. 
We read of him in Acts 8 and verse 13 that he believed. And not only did he believe, he was baptized. And he was baptized by a man that performed, performed miracles, Philip. But his faith was later shown to be sham. The Apostle Peter and John went up to visit. And the Apostle Peter said to him that you're still in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Oh yes, you may have believed, but it's evident that you're not a true Christian. You're excited about the things of God. You want the Holy Spirit? Huh? But we can tell you want the Holy Spirit just so you can add it to your bag of tricks and you can sell it in your magic show. So he had embraced the doctrine of Christ that Philip taught. He even behaved himself as if he had believed and become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as we will see, not all who profess faith possess faith that is true, saving, life-changing faith in Christ. So these are the Stony Ground hears early encouragements. He hears the good word. He immediately receives it into his heart. He does so joyfully, and he believes what he hears. But we have to come to the other side of this coin. It doesn't bear the stamp of a genuine Christian. It seems to be the currency of conversion, but it proves to be counterfeit. So consider his Fatal deficiencies. You see, even the world says not all that glitters is gold. Not all interest in the Word of God is a saving interest in Christ. Notice, first of all, he has no root in himself. That's the diagnosis. For all his seeming interest in preaching... All his excitement about the word of God, at least early on, the heart of the stony ground here is shallow. Jesus says he has no firm root in himself. Notice he doesn't say he has no firm root in Christ. He doesn't say he has no firm root in the word of God. These things are true, but he has no firm root in himself. That's what Jesus focuses upon. Therefore, his reception of the gospel is superficial. And since the germinating seed has no depth of soil, no deep character into which to strike its roots, he has no gravity of, of bearing in his heart, which deeply contemplates himself in relation to the truth, the shallowness of the soil of his heart pushes the shoot quickly upward, with a profession of faith. But he's top-heavy. He doesn't have any depth to him. Better, the word had gone deeper into his heart, but because it could not, it, he had no root. You see, there was spontaneous growth, but no depth. You'll see that sometimes when you go to clean your gutters out, we have maple trees around our house. You know, dust and dirt gets swirled up and in the gutters, and the seeds land there. And sometimes you'll see little seedlings coming through your gutter, gutter guards. Well, there's no place for the root to go down. Just the shoot comes up. 
and you can whisk it away with your hand. For instance, the stony ground here immediately is pleased to learn that Jesus died for sinners, and he may see himself as a sinner. And Jesus died for sinners, and therefore he must have died for him. He may be moved to embrace the free offer of the gospel, but his shallow heart is never turned over by a deep plowing of the law of God. Because his understanding of himself is so shallow, his understanding of the gospel will be superficial. Brethren, we are rooted in truth only as deeply as we are rooted in ourselves. That's what Jesus intimates in what he says here. In other words, self-awareness is crucial to a saving understanding of the gospel. We have to know who we are, who God is, why we need salvation. We truly know the Lord only to the degree that we truly know ourselves and our need. Therefore, a superficial knowledge of self leaves little room for the seed of the gospel to put down deep roots. It's all superficial, all shallow excitement. We cannot know our need for God's saving grace in Christ until we know something of ourselves, our need for salvation that Jesus purchased by his substitutionary sacrifice. We have to know why we need Jesus. We have to understand that we're lost before we'll really have a concept of what it means to be saved. So the seed of the gospel is planted no deeper in our hearts than our knowledge of ourselves. Calvin famously said, we cannot know God unless we first know ourselves. A creature must know himself before he is able to know his creator. Mr. Robertson has observed the practical effect of the false believer lacking root in himself when he writes, stability is like a tree. Here a man, the man has a mushroom growth and endures for a while, temporary, quick to sprout, quick to stumble. He says, what a picture of some converts in our modern revivals. And we need to examine what's gone on in Kentucky in light of this parable. He says, they drop away overnight because they did not have the root of the matter in them. This man does not last or hold out. So he lacks root in himself. Secondly, he lacks the moisture of gospel grace. He lacks essential moisture. Jesus adds in Luke's parallel that as soon as the seed grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. You see, only when the seed of the gospel is moistened by the grace of God will it put down deep roots in the soil of the soul. Only by God's grace continually moistening does the seed grow up and eventually bear fruit. You know, wildfire will warm your hands for a while, but it, it goes out over time. It doesn't have a source. It has no continual fuel. In this case, the seed has no continual moisture. It must have the moisture of grace. 
You see, if it is not to wither under the trials that it's going to face when it breaks ground. You see, only by this moisture does it remain healthy and not wither when it faces the scorching rays of the rising sun and the trials it must inevitably face. So that's the stony ground here's early encouragements and his fatal deficiencies. Notice thirdly, this, the stony ground here's eventual apostasy. The movement of Jesus' thought is taking us in this direction, is it not? Notice, first of all, the root of his apostasy. And the root of his apostasy, if by grace we are saved through faith, the root of his apostasy is his temporary faith. It doesn't last. You see, the faith of the stony ground here appears genuine, but only for a time. He seems to have really begun the Christian life. Many think that he's a true Christian. He thinks probably that he's a true Christian. But what happens? Later he rejects the word that he once professed to receive. Once he seemed full of faith, but now he's full of doubts. And over time his faith proves to be false. His fascination with the things of Christ wanes. And over time, he ends up walking away from the Savior he once professed to know and love. Jesus describes such false faith in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Read the book of, of John and look up the word believe, believing, believes. And you'll see that where that word is used often... It speaks of those who had a kind of a faith, but not saving faith. John 2, verses uh, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. John makes a very interesting play on words here. It's not reflected in the English translation. It says that many believed in him, and literally, Jesus didn't believe in them. You see, Jesus knows true from false believers. He reveals himself to true believers, and he hides himself from the false. Witnessing miracles, beloved, does not bring sinners to Christ. It may excite interest, but it doesn't produce faith. Many believed in Jesus, the miracle worker, that never entrusted their souls to Jesus, the Savior. Further, saving faith liberates men from the power of their sin. Jesus admonished Jews that had professed belief in him while they remained slaves of their unbelief and sin. John chapter 8, verses 30 through 32. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Now, before it was observing his signs, now it's hearing his words. 
Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But they didn't. We should not be surprised that many who express interest in Jesus, some who even claimed themselves to be disciples, we see in John 6 and verse 66, they walked away from him to follow him no more. Such so-called believers never possess the faith of God's elect, a faith that perseveres to the end. Indeed, such professed faith, such excitement about Jesus may even turn into hellish rebellion against Christ. You see, not a few who cried Hosanna at Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem would a few hours cry, crucify. Real faith isn't fickle. It lays hold of Christ and it won't let him go. So the root of the stony ground here is eventual apostasy is his temporary faith. Notice the fruit of his apostasy, final falling away from the word of God. To apostatize means to stand apart from. And here it means to fall away from commitment to the word of God and the person of Christ. And to the church of Christ. So let's consider, as we look at the fruit of his apostasy, a pathology of apostasy. I'm using medical language here to describe a spiritual problem. Jesus did. It's only those who are unhealthy that need a physician. And these prove to be unhealthy. But they don't know it. They think they're healthy. Apostasy is a lethal spiritual disease. It kills all who walk away from Christ. The apostasy of the stony ground here, at first it begins secretly in his heart, but eventually it shows itself in his life, that it's a sham after all. First, he turns away from practical godliness. The faith of God's elect, it produces a holiness that is obvious. But he turns away from practical godliness, because he's only been faking it this far, into open sin, or he turns away from a, an orthodox testimony to false teaching, or both. Usually they go together. This turning away from orthodoxy and from holiness leads to departure from an open allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is usually followed by a departure from a committed attendance upon the ministry of a biblical local church. When you leave Christ, you leave his people, which is leaving his church. And notice that I am not speaking of professing Christians who never formally attach themselves to a true church of Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't recognize such persons as true Christians. 
One must first have a credible profession of faith to fall from. And a credible profession of faith, according to the teaching of Scripture, normally involves church membership. You cannot leave the faith of Christ without leaving the church of Christ that He came to establish. Apostasy involves both. So as we consider this pathology of apostasy, notice first, apostasy involves withering by degrees. Withering is a process of slow decay that leads eventually to death. You probably had plants like that. If you don't have a green thumb, maybe you have a brown thumb. And the things that you plant, maybe many of them die. And they wither in the process. A leaf loses its greenness and vitality by degrees, not all at once, but little by little. One writer tersely describes the withering of a false believer. If you've been a Christian very long, this is nothing new to you. You've seen it. This man says of the withering of professing Christians, they stand off, lose interest, stop coming to church, drop out of sight. It is positively amazing the number of new church members who stumble, do not like the pastor, take offense at something said or done by somebody, object to the appeals for money, feel slighted. The season of trial becomes a season of temptation for these superficial, emotional people who have to be periodically rounded up to be kept in the fold. Now, brethren, we all know, if we're true Christians, that the vitality of a true Christian may wax and wane. You may falter at times, but you will not fall away from the faith because you are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He that began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He spilled his blood. He puts his, the stamp of his promise upon that. But the stony ground here falls away from the profession of a saving faith that he never had. He had never experienced the life-changing power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He falls away from the temporary faith of hypocrites. Therefore, notice, finally, apostasy involves a final departure from the faith. The hypocrites falling away may be distinguished from the falls of the true Christian. It is not partial or temporary, as will be the fall of a true Christian, even as was the fall of the disciples and of Peter specifically during the period of our Lord's Passion. A true Christian may stumble, but he always recovers. He always returns to Christ. He returns to His truth. He returns to His church in brokenness, confessing His sin. But the fall that Jesus speaks of here is final. There's no rising from this fall. 
The New Testament furnishes us with, with several examples of apostates. Those who abandoned the truth they once professed. And brethren, Judas immediately comes to mind. He's the apostate apostle. He rubbed shoulders with Jesus for three years. And Jesus knew from the very beginning who it was who would betray him. He watched the pathology of the apostate apostle. He knew what was in his heart, even though the other disciples, when they were asked, you know, one of you is going to betray me. And they all said, is it I, is it I, is it I? They never pointed to Judas and said, we knew it was him. No, he was the purser for the apostles. He probably had the most respect of the whole college of apostles. He carried the money box. He was the most trustworthy to their eyes. And we find in Judas that he who once preached Christ later abandoned him, betrayed him. Demas forsook the truth and the apostle to return out of love to this present world. He was with Paul twice. He's mentioned in Paul's epistles, once as a fellow worker with Paul. The churches in Galatia withered away little by little, falling from the true gospel by embracing a false gospel. Paul sought to correct that in Galatians. And we may include among sorry apostates such men as Hymenaeus and Philetus, who once held a true doctrine of the resurrection, only later to abandon the apostolic faith, teaching that the resurrection had already passed. And in the process, they led many astray. They upset their faith, at least. You see, many who leave the faith, they're not content to leave alone. They want to take others with them. And this is because misery loves company. So we've seen a pathology of apostasy. Let us look at the reason for his falling away. <clears throat> Matthew 20, uh, thirteen twenty one: When affliction or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he falls away. And Luke adds kind of bringing those two ideas together in Luke 8, 13, in a time of temptation, falls away. The same word that the stony ground hearer once seemed to love and to cherish, the word that he received immediately, eagerly, and joyfully, at first he just as fervently later abandons. Identification with the word of Christ becomes, you see, too burdensome for him to bear. When he became a Christian, it was all excitement. He's like a new recruit. He sees the banners flying on presentation day. He wants to be dressed up in his dress blues. And he wants to march around. But he doesn't realize he's entered into a war. When he said, you know, when I took my chevrons, I never believed that I would face this. I didn't want this. Why didn't you tell me about this? 
He realizes that unswerving commitment to the word of Christ will cost him perhaps family harmony or the love of friends or advancement in the world. He can't be a true Christian and get on with those people. And and so he says, you know, I count the cost of discipleship. Jesus never said it was going to. He didn't. Well, maybe he never heard it. There's a lot of preaching that go, going across pulpits today that never call disciples to count the cost. You can't read the Gospels without seeing it on about every other page. And so he gives in to the powerful temptation to abandon the Word and to walking in the narrow way that leads to life. And he abandons it for the easier way of the world, the wide road. And because his root is shallow, his Profession is easily pulled up by the roots and overthrown. And so the stony ground here proves to be a nine-day wonder. He's a flash in the pen. And he's a hypocrite at last. And because he has no deep root, he produces no real fruit. Spurgeon closed as I come to my application with his words. When matters grow hot with Christians, either through affliction from the Lord or persecution from the world, the temporary believer is so sapless, so rootless, so deficient in the moisture of grace that he dries up and his profession withers. Thus, again, the sower's hopes are disappointed and his labor is lost. Till stony hearts are changed, it must always be so. We meet with many who are soon hot and as soon cold. They receive the, the gospel immediately and leave it later. Everything is on the surface there is, and therefore is hasty and unreal. And then he says, and he asks this question, May we all have broken hearts and prepared minds that when truth comes to us, it may take root in us and remain. So what does it say by way of a few words of concluding application? I have four points and try to be brief. First of all, do not be surprised when you see professing Christians leave the faith. Don't be surprised at that. Expect it. Oh, don't pray for it. Obviously, you don't want to see it, but it happens. It happened in Jesus' day, through the course of church history, down to our own day. Sooner or later, you will know someone who once seemed wholeheartedly committed to Christ in His Word, and later he abandons his profession. And when that happens, don't allow your own faith to be overthrown. You don't have to go down with him or her. I've seen the faith of especially younger Christians shaken when they observe a friend or some well-known professing Christian, maybe his name's out there, leave the faith and renounce what he once professed to believe. Just about knocks him off their feet. We need to be better students of our Bibles, don't we? If hypocrites attended upon Christ's ministry and united with his disciples and later abandoned the church, should we be surprised to meet with such today? Brethren, bad men are still in the professing church. 
Men who profess to embrace the gospel, trust in Christ, unite with His church, and then, then prove themselves to be apostates at last. Keep ever in mind that the problem is not with the seed, and it's not with the sower, it's with the soil. Secondly, see how far professing a professing Christian may go in his attachment to the word and yet prove a hypocrite at last. Consider the resume of the stony ground here. Many are like him today. He knows the word. He can quote scripture. He can open his Bible to many passages. He may be a good student of the word. He assents to the word. He says, I not only know it, but I believe what it, what it teaches. He professes the word. This is the ground I stand on. And he's excited about the word. He rejoices in it. It's like the hidden manna that the Bible speaks of. That gives nourishment to his soul, sweetness to his life. And he may even bear some kind of fruit from the word. Yet he brings no fruit to maturity. Because he lacks spiritual depth, the moisture of preserving grace, and perseverance in the faith against temptations to abandon the faith. Finally, he becomes disillusioned with Christ, disillusioned with the church, and he, he leaves the faith. Unless he tries to keep up some kind of appearance. But brethren, let us, let we who think we stand, take heed lest we fall. There's a word here of admonition to us. The jury, let's face it, is out on each one of us. Now some of us have been longer in the faith than others. But John Bunyan said that somebody, someone could fall into the pit of hell from the very portals of heaven. He was temporary for a long time. And then he proved what he was. I'm not denying that a Christian can have well-grounded assurance of salvation. No, the Bible teaches it. That the stony ground here is in the church means that each one of us must test ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. We must make our calling and election sure to see that the root of the matter is in us. Many professing Christians, Paul says, have a name that they are alive, or John says, but they are dead. Are we fruit-bearing Christians? Thirdly, beware of any withering in your commitment to the Word of God. Borrow here from Benjamin Keach, late 17th century particular Baptist. He asked the question, how may a man know that he is withering? And he says, be aware of these signs. And he gives six of them. First of all, self-confidence. He doesn't need to examine himself. He's cocky. He's self-assured. He's the real deal. Secondly, when he cannot hear a searching doctrine, 
He doesn't like close application of the Word of God. He likes doctrine, but he doesn't like the practical application of it, especially to himself. Thirdly, when his conscience is not as tender as it was, he does strive to maintain a blood-washed conscience. You know, he fudges on little things and then bigger things and bigger things beyond that. And things he thought he would never do, things he thought he would never believe, suddenly he's there. Fourthly, when a man's prayers are short, they're mumbled, they're formal, they're careless, they're infrequent, if they're offered at all. It's a sure sign that we are on the road to apostasy if we have not the breath of life within us. Fifthly, when he cannot stand in the hour of temptation, before he was strong, he thought so anyway, now he faces hurricane-like temptations. Because he'd been withering, they wouldn't have blown him over before. He could have leaned into him, But now he's knocked off of his feet. He can hardly get himself back up. He says, why fight it anymore? So he gives way easily. He doesn't stand boldly for Christ any longer. You see him more among the carnal crowd. Apparently feels comfortable with him. And finally, deadness of spirit. He just goes through the motions. He's dead inside and finally he knows it. He may have a formal profession, but it's not thriving, it's not living, it's not life-changing. No excitement, no joy anymore. Now he just decides, I'm going to give up the grind. Fourthly and finally, make sure that your professed faith is deeply rooted in the Word of Christ. Or better, perhaps, make sure that your faith is deeply rooted in the Christ of the Word. Many appear to love the Word of Christ that have no love for Christ and the Word. They, they have the husk, but they don't have the kernel. They have the Word of Christ, but they don't have Christ of the Word. It's Christ of the Word that makes the living Word active and powerful in our lives. If your faith is in Christ, you will not turn from His Word. Remember that merely receiving the Word, believing the Word, joy in the Word, is no sure evidence of saving faith in Christ of the Word. Examine yourselves, test yourselves, to see whether you're in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. Go through those steps that that Peter speaks of. Are you making progress in the Christian life or are you stepping away? Are you starting to wither? Examine your life by the fruit of the Spirit. Ask yourself, what areas in my life am I living in disobedience to the Word of Christ? What duties am I leaving undone? What sins am I not mortifying? 
What graces by the Spirit are not being vivified in me? These are the kind of basic, honest questions that we need to ask ourselves and come before God with judgment day honesty. Lord, show me these things. If I'm starting to travel down the road of apostasy, arrest me. Don't let me go any further. Bring me back to the point of departure. Bring me to my knees and confess my sins and get back right with my eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. That's what we need to do. Oh, may God take these things and write them upon our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, how can we come to this word of your Son and not be found out? Lord, we don't want to hide from your word. We want to face Jesus Christ. We want to look in the mirror of your word and see what manner of people we are. We don't want just the, to put on our face on those blemishes just the clearest ill of carelessness. No, we, we want these things lanced. We want them purified. We want to see more of, of the image of Christ in us when we look in the mirror. Lord, we want to see Jesus. We want to grow more in conformity to His image. And let us not have a name that we live, but are dead. Let us not be formalists. Let us be biblical realists and face ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God. Oh, gracious God, how powerful dealings with us. You that began that good work in us, we pray that by bringing us to, to repentance and confession, that you would perform your good work in us and conform us more and more to the blessed image of him who loved us and gave himself for us, the one to whom we desire to be, conformed ultimately. We continue that work, we pray. Let us not go backwards, but forwards. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.